0: If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We return to Ecclesiastes, this amazing book that we often uh, neglect. um, Contains great truth. If you're having trouble finding it, just take your Bible, turn it right to the middle. You'll probably end up in Psalms, and then you can turn pages forward to the right, uh, to the left. You'll hit Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, they invite you to grab a Bible there in the pew in front of you, and I believe it's on page three hundred and eighty. Three hundred and eighty. This morning I will be reading Ecclesiastes three sixteen through four six, in a sermon entitled "The Desolation of the Dragon." Let me pray, and then I'll ask you to stand, and we'll read God's Word. Father, help us through the Holy Spirit to see in your Word that which is true, and help this not to be an endeavor in mere learning, that we would just know more about the book of Ecclesiastes and what Solomon is talking about. But God, help us to take away truths that would meet us in real life and help us to live in this world, in this difficult world filled with suffering and pain and help us to be able to live because of Christ a life of joy, and give us peace, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you've found your way there. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes three sixteen. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the pla- place of righteousness even there was wickedness. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I wonder if you have yet seen the world for what it really is. One day you will, um, no matter what, one day you will. And when you see it, you can never unsee it. It usually takes something terrible uh, to happen in your life. A sudden death, a deployment to a terrible part of the world, an onset of a terminal sickness, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, an accident that completely alters your life. Every Thanksgiving, my family would gather, gathers at my grandmother's house. And it was no different the month after I returned from deployment in 2007. And I remember sitting in that house, it was crammed full of more people that you know should have been there, crammed into that small house, all my relatives. And I remember just sitting there and looking at them all and thinking to myself that they're living in an illusion. They don't, they don't know. They don't know what the world really is. And so I, I went outside, and I was standing. Uh, there's a fence. They used to keep buffalo out of their front yard, and I was standing there looking out on, at the pond and uh, just trying to get away from all of that. And my uncle, who I probably had maybe five conversations with, and they were all about motorcycles, came out, uh, a Vietnam veteran, and he said, he only said this, I understand. This is also why I have tremendous respect for those who work in the police department and the fire department, because they see this every day. They see the world for what it is every day. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, and that's going to happen to everyone here. Someday, everyone here will have the veil removed, and you'll see the world for what it truly is. The Hobbit, the great, uh, the great children's story, you probably are very familiar with it, with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, in *The Hobbit*, the main character is a company of dwarves. Thorin and his company of, of dwarves—they're on a mission to reclaim the dwarven kingdom—and and with them is Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey, the great wizard, and and his companion. Bilbo Baggins, and they're on a mission to go back to this mountain. And in the lonely mountain is a dragon. And this dragon, Smog, sits upon a massive treasure. And he took, Smog had taken this kingdom by force. And in the taking of it, he had completely destroyed and laid desolate all of the surrounding regions around this mountain. Everything is scorched and blackened, and there's no life. And as they get closer to this area, you read this. It was a weary journey and a quiet and stealthy one. There was no laughter or song or sound of harps, and the pride and hopes which had stirred in their hearts at the singing of old songs by the lake had died away to a plodding gloom. They knew that they were drawing near to the end of their journey and that it might be a very horrible end. The land about them grew bleak and barren, Though once, as Thornton had told them, it had been green and fair. There was little grass, and before long there was neither bush nor tree, and only broken and blackened stumps to speak of one's once long banished. There we came to the desolation of the dragon. Tolkien is, by his own admission, not fond of overtly Christian allegory in his writing, like his friend C.S. Lewis. But he does admit that all of his writing is influenced by the Christian worldview. So you're able to observe um, Christian elements of the biblical story through his writing. And and whenever I read that or think about that, I cannot help but see a picture of the world. I can't help but see a picture of the dragon from Revelation 12.9, which says which speaks of the great dragon of old, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the one who leads the whole world astray. This real dragon, the primordial dragon, has ravaged the entire world. And the world is a desolation. And once you see it, you'll never unsee it. When terrible things happen, the veil is removed and you see the destruction and devastation in the world. A world which God had made beautiful and green. A world without pain and suffering. A pain where, or a, a world where we lived with God and we walked with God face to face in the garden. And we lived in perfect harmony with God's creation and with God. And this, this is, of course... Uh, central to the storyline of the Bible, and it's why I have entitled this sermon series, Emptiness East of Eden. Emptiness East of Eden. Of course, this is taken from Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. God had created this beautiful world. It was very good. This is what God says. The, The world is very good. And this world was plunged into ruin and desolation by the work of Satan, the ancient dragon, the dragon of old. He tempted our first parents and our first parents believed his lies rather than the truth of God and they broke covenant with our God and as a result, the whole world was cursed and plunged into utter desolation and despair and Adam in his sin was cast out of the garden. The garden being God's presence, access to God, fellowship with God, eternal life. He was cast east and guarding the way back to the garden, God placed the cherubim with a flaming sword which moved all about preventing the return. And the Bible then unfolds as God's act, God's acting in this world in His promises to bring us back to the garden." And the promises come at the very beginning in Genesis 3, and they progress as the storyline of the Bible unfolds. And this is where we live, cast out east of Eden in a world cursed by the fall. And today in our text, what Solomon does is he makes three observations about this world. So if you're taking notes notes today, it's three observations about the world east of Eden. He beholds the desolation of the dragon. He sees the sin-infested world for what it is. And I think he gives us some good advice on how do we live in this world as one who is a believer, one who knows God. How do we live in this world? This is our world. We can't escape it. How do we live in it? Now I need to reorient you to the book, I guess, a little bit, because it's been about four weeks or so since we've been here. This is Solomon's really masterwork of the human condition. I think this is what Ecclesiastes is. It's Solomon is King David's son, king of Israel, the wisest man in the entire world, perhaps the wealthiest man in the known world, and he has peace on every side. This is part of God's promise to, to David, to King David, in this covenant with David that one of his ancestors was coming and that through him um, he would establish his throne forever. But there are parts of that promise that clearly apply directly to Solomon, that Solomon would build the temple, that he would have peace on every side and prosperity. And so Solomon later in life, older in life, recounts um, and puts down in writing his observations of the world. That's really the book of Ecclesiastes. It's life east of Eden under the sun. If you remember, the first kind of two sermons unpack this idea, the main themes. And it's that life under the sun, that is, what can humans just observe? If you are to live your life with maybe little to no regard for God, what can you do in the world? Right? So the book begins. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So if you're going to live in the world as if you can gain something from just living in the world, can you actually gain anything? Right? Can you find fulfillment? Can you find real pleasure? Can you find peace? And the answer that he says is no. The, the word vanity Has a a range of meanings. It means something like a breath or a wind, something that is fleeting, that just is here for a second, then gone, absurd, futile. It can mean empty, meaningless. And he says that if you live your life as if this is all there is, and you try to gain from the world, you're going to find that it's absolutely meaningless and empty. And he took, took us on a little journey. Remember that in chapter 2? He said, I'm going to go to a little quest. It's a pleasure quest. He has all the resources in the world. He can do whatever he wants, so he goes on a pleasure quest. Can knowledge provide ultimate meaning in life? And he says, no. Can pleasure, and he lists all the various ways uh, uh, that he goes after pleasure. He becomes a hedonist, alcohol, entertainment, sex, wealth. He does it all. He does everything. And he says it's all meaningless, it's all an empty striving after the wind. That's another phrase he uses. To, you, can't ch- you can't catch the wind. And that's what he says life is like when you live life, life this way. Then the last sermon we looked at, it, it, it was chapter 3. It was all about time and what does time reveal to us about God. We saw two things. That there is an appointed time for everything. And what time does to us is we understand and we realize I'm not in control of anything, right? I can't decide to go out in the middle of winter and plant corn. Right? I didn't determine the seasons. I didn't determine when I was born. I, can't, I don't determine when I die. I don't, I never, I'm not the one who determined that it's inappropriate to laugh at someone's funeral. Remember, so time functions in this capacity to, to remind us that we are finite, and that we are not God. But secondly, we were, we were reminded by time that God is infinite, unbound by time and space. He's the one who appoints the times. He's appointed all time and everything and it's all for the purpose that we would stand in reverential awe and fear of God. And now, coming off of that great sermon about the sovereignty of God and how The sovereignty of God in time reminds us that we are not God. He moves into these observations about the world in which we live. Some have said that these are possibly objections people could raise to chapter 3. And I can see that 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 could be. These three objections are about how the world is broken, as we'll see. Three observations of the world east of Eden. And here's why I think this, this sermon is important. Because you have to live in this world. How do you do it? You're not going to escape. You can't just go through life in a gloomy pit of despair. You have to live in it. And Solomon provides good advice for us. He provides good advice. And I want to I share that with you. I want to show you this very simple philosophy so that you could incorporate in your life, but also to move beyond it to show you that we read these Old Testament books as Christians. It's a great privilege that we have, as we have all of God's Word. And so when we come to texts like this, it's able to do something for us um, that even the earliest uh, believers in the Old Testament couldn't see. But we can see the fullness of it. And so the ultimate aim would be to have you to hope in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So today let's look at this. Three observations of the world east of Eden. Number one, east of Eden the world is full of injustice. So he makes a series of observations and reflections in verse 16 through the end of chapter 3. So 3.16 through the end of chapter 3 is observation followed by a couple of reflections on that observation. Okay. So first, what does he observe? Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. So first, in the place of justice, there's wickedness. What is that? What is the place of justice? The place of justice, where's the place where you think, this is the place, the whole world's full of wickedness, but I know if I go here, there's got to be justice here. It's the courts, right? The courts. The courts are supposed to be places of justice. Society may be full of injustice, but the courts are supposed to be just and You get a picture of this even in our society today. What is painted in courtrooms all across America, or perhaps in a statue in front of courtrooms all across America, it is Lady Justia. And she's blindfolded, and she holds in her hand scales because she is supposed to, without any biases, right, she's supposed to be completely neutral. Justice is supposed to be fair, whether you're rich or you're poor, or whatever you are. The scales of justice are supposed to be even, and we see that. But what Solomon sees is that even in this place, there's wickedness. There's injustice. Injustice, according to God, you can find it all over. He talks about it all over, but here's just a few places. Isaiah 5, 23, Proverbs 17, 15. Injustice is described as the guilty being acquitted for a bribe or the innocent being deprived of a right or justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous injustice and both alike all are an abomination to god god hates injustice and solomon sees that sin has so pervaded society that even in the courts the courts are full of wickedness and injustice. Now, we observe this all over our society today. I heard once someone say, um, I can't remember who, but at law school, he had learned that at the very beginning, a professor say that in America, we have the best justice system that's ever existed on planet Earth. There's never been one more fair more even, more just if everyone tells the truth, right? That's a big if, and that's the problem, isn't it? The problem is that courts are made up of people, and people are unjust, and so there is injustice everywhere. Right? That's so why I always tell my kids, right, if anything ever happens to you in your life, you guys might think I'm paranoid. You have the right to remain silent. Don't ever say a single thing. Don't you ever say a single thing. Keep your mouth shut. Right? Because why? Because even our courts, they're filled with unjust judges, unjust lawyers, It's the world we live in. And Solomon observed the same thing in his day. Secondly, if you move on, he says, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. What's the place of righteousness? If the courts fail, where should we find justice always? In the church, right? Or in the religious institution of Solomon's day among the priests among the, at the temple. There should always be fairness and perfect righteousness there, but even there he observes. And the, the Old Testament is filled with, I mean, we don't have time, but filled with priests that are immoral and unjust and do not actually know the Lord. But we can see no clearer picture of both of these institutions coming together where the court is unjust and the religious institution isn't just in the trial and the arrest and the trial of Jesus Christ because the chief priests and the elders conspire together with false witnesses with lies and they take him before the power the court and they demand his crucifixion. And even when Pilate is like, hey, look, I've got this uh, insurrectionist murderer here. Like, I'm going to give you out. Let's, let's, uh, I'm planning to crucify this guy. Or do you want to crucify Jesus, who I can find no fault in? What do they cry out for? They cry out for the crucifixion of Jesus There is no place east of Eden that is not tainted by wickedness and injustice. The guilty are acquitted and go free, and the innocent are convicted. The scales of injustice are bent. The blindfold is a complete farce. And now he reflects upon this, this injustice that is pervading society. He now makes his first reflection, Ecclesiastes 3.17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every manner manner and every work. This takes us back to chapter 3, right? Where God has appointed a time for everything. He says, here is some at least good news for you. Here's some good news. If you have faced injustice of any kind, right, and you have been a victim, and maybe perhaps you have been and you're here today and you, and you think this person is going to get away with this and die. And nothing will ever happen. And it does happen. Many people never face justice in this life. But Solomon tells us there is a time coming. There's a time coming. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time appointed for judgment. It's coming. That's good news for those who have been victims. And that's bad news for those who are the victimizers, those who are perpetuating injustice in the world. That's bad news for them. The wicked will stand in front of God. They will not get away with their injustices. God is there. He sees all. He knows all. He knows even the innermost parts of every human heart. Nothing is hidden from His sight, and He is perfect in righteousness and justice. This is part of His very essence, His very nature. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every single manner under heaven. There's a time for justice. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. There is a judgment coming. This is the first reflection. Now the second reflection, verse, verses 18 through 21. I'll just read them again. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to the one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Now remember, Solomon often dips into the perspective and the mind of one who is completely worldly and saturated with the mind of the world with little to no regard to God. And that is what he does here. And he, does, he shifts back and forth and he'll give us insight. It's very amazing how he writes. It's well inspired by God and part of the genius of God at the end of the day. This is what he says. Number one in this section, justice delayed, right? That's what he's dealing with. He's he's reflecting. Why, if there's coming a time, why is it delayed? Why is it not now if God is just? Okay? Because God's testing man. First, justice is delayed to allow man's wickedness to increase and reveals to fallen man that their hearts are so inclined to evil, and that our concepts of what is just and unjust and what is right and wrong makes us just as bad as beasts. There are echoes of like the garden, right, all throughout this book in brilliant ways, and I think this is one. In Genesis three: four through five, what is the promise of the dragon? Eat of the fruit of the tree, you will become like God. But what is God showing us? We've become like beasts. We may at the end of the day, after we ate, God said they have become like us, knowing good and evil. But what do we do with that knowledge? Right? We invent various kinds of evil. We do evil things that animals don't even do to each other. He delays His justice, and it reveals more and more... The depravity of man, that apart from God, we become worse than an animal. Second, God is showing us our mortality. We played God, and humanity is still playing God. And God is showing us that no matter what we think about ourselves, at the end of the day, you're going to die just like an animal dies. came from the dust, they came from the dust. They returned to the dust, and we returned to the dust. We came from the same place, we returned to the same place. We're no better off at the end of the day. We may think we may determine what's right and wrong in this world, and in the end we're going to die just like an animal dies. It should bring about a humbling of us, right? It should. All go to that one place, verse 20, from dust to dust. We are but dust. And you should hear again an echo. There's an echo ringing in my ear. What did God say in Genesis 3, 19? When he curses the earth and then he pronounces the curse upon Adam, he says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So God is showing us our mortality. God also is showing us our ignorance. What can a person do that is proud and arrogant and lives as if God is not important, with little to no regard to God at all? What observations can he make in this world? He sees a man die. He sees an animal die. What can he know? Right? He can't really know anything. What happens to the spirit of a man? Does it go upward? Who knows? What happens to the spirit of, of an animal? Beast, does it go downward? All you're left with is human speculation, right? And of course, we can see in the world, when man apart from God speculates upon death, what do we end up with? A different, a different religion, a different philosophy, a different idea about everything, right? In America, we have, what do we have? Justification by death. Everyone that dies in America goes to heaven. Did you know that? Is that not what you have observed at every single funeral you've ever been to in your life? Whether someone was an absolute pagan and hated God, they die and go to a better place. That's all you're left with, right? That's all you have when God leaves us alone is pure speculation. But this also functions in a rhetorical way that has another meaning to it. Solomon obviously knows what happens to you when you die because he will explicitly state it later. So he's not saying he doesn't know. What he's saying is if you want to live like that, you can't know. And then this questions, they have answers, right? He, he asks these two questions. If you look, look at your text, look, look back at your text. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, spirit of the beast goes down to the earth, and then at the end... Who can bring him to see what will be after him? What's the answer? That's staring you in the face without him spelling it out for you. God. God can tell you. This, the way this is phrased is very similar to Psalm 49, 13-15, which also shows a very proud and arrogant man and one who has humbled himself before God. This is what you read. Psalm 49, 13-15. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But then the humble who have entrusted themselves to God says this, But God will ransom my soul from Sheol, and he will receive me. Now, in such a world tainted with injustice and saturated with death, what is a man of God to do in such a world? Ecclesiastes 3.22, 322 gives you the answer. Now, we're not going to stay here. We're just, I'm just going to read it and move on because it's coming back later. We're going to come back later to it at the end of the sermon. He says, So I saw there is nothing better that a man, for a man that he should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. So who, who can bring him to see what will be after him? leave it there. We'll leave it hanging. We'll come back to it. So the first observation. Three observations of the world east of Eden. Number one, east of Eden, the world is full of injustice. Number two, east of Eden, the world is full of oppression. Look back at your text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them, On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So There's the observation. The world is not only full of injustice, it's full of oppression. Now, don't think that these are synonyms, because they are not. What is oppression? Well, injustice, obviously, is the perversion of right and wrong, of what God's standards is, God's law. Oppression is, is, it may be unjust, it is unjust, but it isn't exactly the same. Oppression, if you read here and then look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll come up with something like this. Someone could have a better definition, but this one I think is okay. Oppression is an act of depriving or stealing from another human being what is theirs by God's grace. It often involves power, but not always. Okay, It is depriving or stealing from another human what is theirs by God's grace. The Ten Commandments are based in this idea. Our founding fathers had this idea of like the kind of natural law or what is our inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. But if you read through the Ten Commandments, you can see clearly that we have rights given to us by our Creator. right? You are a human being made in God's image. You are not actually an animal. And therefore you have rights given to you by God. Right? You have a right to your life. So therefore, murder is a sin. It's illegal. For someone to take what God has given to you is wrong. You have a right to live. Therefore, you can extrapolate laws from that. You have a right to defend your own life or your family member's life or your loved one's life or really any other image bearers of God. You don't have to stand by why someone, for no reason, murders someone else. There is a right to life. You have a right to property. Don't steal. Right? Don't steal is based in this idea that God has given you a right, that you have a right to your own property. Whatever you make, you have a right to it, to sell it, keep it, do whatever, Various laws come from this. Uh, you have a right to your own reputation. Therefore, people can't just slander you and lie about you and ruin your reputation. You have a right to marry and to have children. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do that or that in a fallen world you will have children, but you have a right to marry. Your wife is your wife. Your husband is your husband. And other people can't covet your husband or your wife and take them from you. So adultery is wrong. And flowing out of that, we can say that children have a right to a mother and a father. Now, of course, in a fallen world, it doesn't always work out like that. And sometimes there's are single parents and they have, they have to raise a child by themselves. But hopefully in the church, uh, a man could step in and fill in the place of a father. But a child has a right to a mother and a father. It's God's design. So then any laws that would harm that institution are oppressive, right? They they would rob a child of what God has designed for them. This is the insanity of the world in which we live and where two homosexual men now are seeking to file (coughs) and to pursue justice under the American system of law in the state of New York because they believe they have the right to in vitro fertilization so they can have a child. That which they cannot do, possibly. Well, which would never be. They believe they have the right. So think about what's implied there. That means they would have the right to a surrogate mother to compel a, a woman, apparently, so she loses the right of her body. I don't know how this will even work. But think about the child. A child has a right to a mother and father, and we ought not ever to purposefully Take that away from a child, or we become an oppressor. You probably think in oppression, you probably think of slavery. That's a big, obvious one, like the, 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 the greatest oppression that's ever occurred in the face of the planet, right, has got to be probably slavery. Not just slavery in the New World, which was really bad from 1523 to 1866. In the transatlantic slave trade, like something like 12.5 million human beings, image bearers of God, were enslaved and oppressed by power, and not just by you know white Europeans, but by their own people who were oppressing them and kidnapping them. But it goes way back further than that. Humanity has always enslaved and oppressed each other, and even to this day, people are enslaved. All over the world and they're oppressed. That's oppression on a massive scale, right? We think of that. But there are other forms of oppression. I mean, there, there are Christians right now today um, in Belarus. You know, we haven't met them, but through correspondence, we care about them and love them. And some of them are being thrown in jail right now, for like for standing like outside in public, daring. To be Christians in public, thrown in jail for years, completely oppressive and unjust. It could be very small oppressions, there are oppressions everywhere, very small. Maybe your professor knows you're a Christian and doesn't grade your paper fairly on purpose because they hate Christians. That is oppression. And he says and he observes that oppression is all throughout. His kingdom and the world, the tears of the oppressed, there is no one to comfort them. The oppressor has power. Now we might be quick to judge Solomon. I think in the beginning I'm thinking, hmm, this is so weird because you're, like, you're the king, right? And you have power. And surely if there's someone who could observe oppression and do something about it, it's got to be the king. Well, first I would say, could the same thing not be said of you? Is there not oppression even in our town that you probably could do something about? I would say there probably is. We even have a select few in our military whose entire lives are dedicated to this to this cause. They have a motto De Oppressor Liber to free the oppressed. They are the Green Berets the special forces and they were they were uh, formed in June of 1952. So for 70 years, we have the most lethal, the most equipped, the most intelligent, the most trained men on the planet with one mission to free the oppressed. Are there oppressed in the world today? Of course. Because oppression is like this. You deal with oppression here, it pops up over here. So Solomon's observation, right, he could have spent his whole life trying to stamp out oppression, and he would have got nowhere because it is so ingrained. It's like in the fabric of the world in which we live. And so it re- this really becomes like more of a lament. It's his lament. He's lamenting the condition of the world, and his lament gets pretty serious in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he pretty much says this, that you're better off after you're dead because your time viewing this oppression in the world is over. But better than the living and the dead is the one who's never been born because he's never had to view the oppression that is so terrible and rampant in the world. That makes us step back and be like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's weird to say, right? We don't come to the Bible expecting to read verses like that. Verse two: I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. He's lamenting. Now, let me try to explain this to you. This is one of those deals that, right, are frust- that is frustrating when you're studying books of the Bible because sometimes you'll come to a portion, right, and none of your commentaries actually comment on the verse. Do you love that? Like, huh, well, I don't really get the option to just, like, jump, right, and skip. Apparently, you do in print. That's nice. Um, And as you know, like, one of the things that I've been interested in for a long time is the problem of suffering and evil in the world. Here's what I'll tell you, I think, is going on and how you read these verses. Hopefully, it'll be helpful for you in your own life. You don't read verses like this as God making a statement about reality, okay? This isn't God making a statement about reality, right? That it's actually better to be dead than be alive and better that you weren't ever born. However, don't think these words aren't inspired by God because they are. So remember this. Read this in verses like that, if you encounter them, as the truth of the human condition that the world after the fall is so terrible and so awful and that suffering and pain can be so great that men and women can and often do get to that point they do we sometimes may make light of the fall and the fall permeates all of society and you know people die and people get sick and but we forget the psychological component of the fall and how traumatic it can be to people the pain and the misery and the suffering of some people even religious people who do know the Lord and are Christians can be so great that they could say right they could they could be so in despair that they lose momentarily hope in the future a vision that Christ is coming and will redeem all things and they say I wish I was dead Believers can get to that point. I haven't sold you yet on it, have I? Not yet? Not yet? Okay. Elijah once considered himself so much of a failure that he asked God to kill him. It's, It's such a strange and interesting story because it comes off of this, what we would think is a massive success. Elijah... Uh, goes to Mount Carmel. It's this big showdown. He thinks he's the only prophet left in all of Israel, and he's emboldened by the Holy Spirit. And he goes, and he says, let's have a competition. You, you call out to Baal, and we'll see if he, if he does anything. And they're, you know, they're calling out to him. No, no fire. The sacrifice is there, and he starts to make fun of them. Right? He's like, maybe he's, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's using the bathroom. And they start cutting themselves and doing their pagan weirdo stuff. And, and he says, all right, douse it, douse it, get it wet. Just put water all over it. And he calls out to Yahweh, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, he's as bold as a lion, and he takes all the prophets down, and he kills all of them. Amazing story. But then the wicked woman Jezebel, she hears about what Elijah has done, and she says, take a message to Elijah, and you tell him that by this time tomorrow I will do to him what he's done to all the prophets of Baal. And he's afraid, and he gets up and he runs, which is weird, right? I mean, he's now he's scared of a woman. So he runs off into the wilderness. He hides. He comes, he sits down under this tree, and he asks God, he says this, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He, he, thinks, he thinks he's an utter failure, and he says, just kill me. Get it over with. I'd rather be dead. Job. Job's misery was so great. The first words that Job speaks, you may not realize what they are. Job has lost everything in his life. He's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost all of his uh, possessions. His servants. All he has left is this naggy wife, which is probably worse than if she just would have died because the stuff she says to him is terrible. She tempts him to blaspheme God. He's like, I'll never do that. I'll never blaspheme God. But then his friends come, right? And the friends, they start to say stuff to him. And he's sitting there. He's got sores all over his body. He's sick. The first words he says. Let the day perish on which I was which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let... That day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let blackness of that day terrify it. And then in verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out of the womb and expire. And if you know the rest of the stories with Elijah and with Job, God never rebukes them. And Job is actually at the end rewarded by God for his faithfulness. Despite our initial recoiling from language like this, we need to understand the depth of what a lament can be. And lamenting themselves are not sinful. Of course, it could be sinful to remain in that state, right? Your life is over you wish you were dead, and you never look to God. But to initially be struck with that type of psychological pain is part of the human condition after the fall. The difference is the one who is a believer moves beyond it to hope in God. This is the sad reality of the fall. The desolation of the dragon is great and far-reaching. People exist in this world with these deep and dark feelings. And many of them do not know the Lord. They do not have any hope. They just live in a world of scorched earth, pain, and misery. And that is and should be a major motivation to you, the believer. Because you have the only hope that they have that could pull them out of that depth of despair. The reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loved us so much, He entered into this world as a human, into this world of pain and misery and suffering. Imagine to be, if you can, Jesus who has never known anything but perfect love and an existence free from the effects of sin, stepping into a world that is completely saturated by sin. I imagine it would be something like if you've never been around c- cigarette smoke or cigar smoke, and you were to walk into like, a, uh, a gentleman's like club where people sit around drinking whiskey and cigars, and you were to walk into that room, it's saturated with smoke. Your eyes would be shutting, and you would begin to be coughing. <coughs> God loved us that much to step into this world. People need to hear that. That's the only hope that people have. <coughs> Excuse me. What a motivation that's got to be. If we love our neighbor as ourselves and we have this message, to take this message to people. All right, that's the second observation. <coughs> Excuse me. East of Eden, the world is full of injustice and east of Eden, the world is full of oppression. Now the third. East of Eden, the world is full of envy. East of Eden, the world is full of envy. Look back at your text. This is all about toil or what we would call labor or what we would call work. Verses 4 through 6. He sees that all toil, or all human work and effort, and all skill and work, or human advancement, right? What's the driver? <coughs> pre-fall, why do people work? Work is a pre-fall thing, right? God created it for us to live in a world where we love God and were in harmony with Him and the environment, and we cultivated the ground, and we got great pleasure from it, and we did it to God's glory, We got great satisfaction. But what happens post-fall? Work becomes toil. Now what's the driver? What drives human work and human advancement in society? Envy. Envy of one's neighbor. What is envy? Envy is like jealousy. It is a prideful and greedy longing for something that belongs to someone else. Now, obviously, we can see houses, Cars, wealth, but can also be intangible things, intangible like someone's influence, someone's skills, someone's popularity. Envy drives people to move from where they are to advance in their skill and their work. And Solomon says, This is a vanity. A striving after the wind. It's it's totally empty and meaningless. Why? Because envy envy is like a black hole in your soul. No matter how much envy you have, if you were to achieve and accomplish, you will continue to envy what others have, and it will never be enough, and your soul will never be satisfied in things of the world. It's like a big black hole that you can never fill. It's an endless striving after the wind. That's what he says. Envy doesn't only just fuel individuals. Envy drives nations. They covet other nations' land. They covet other nations' resources, their prosperity. And this is why we have wars, right? This is why we've had wars since the beginning of time, and while they were never end, because envy is driving everything in this world. Even all of the great advancements, like all of the stuff we enjoy in this world, like that have been a great benefit to us. It wasn't invented out of the kindness of someone's heart. It was invented for war. Canned food, a pretty good invention. It's helped a lot of poor people. Invented for soldiers. Digital cameras, not invented for the phone in your pocket. Right? Blood transfusions, invented to help soldiers. The EpiPen, right, the EpiPen which, you know, people who have like dangerous allergic reactions they carry around, some scientists didn't go, you know what, I'm gonna create a device that's easy for people to inject themselves with that can save a lot of people's lives. No, the EpiPen was invented so soldiers could inject themselves in the event of a chemical attack. This is the sad reality of the world in which we live. I mean. I could list tons of these with the computer, the internet, GPS. Not invented for you. Invented for the military. Envy is the engine that turns the wheel of civilization as it grinds over people in injustice and oppression. Now, if envy drives the world forward... If that is how the world works, how do the people of God work? That's what we have to ask ourselves. How should you work in a world where everything is driven by envy, right? It's a dog-eat-dog world. Corporations trying to destroy other corporations, people at work competing against each other. It's a cutthroat world. How do you work as a Christian in that world? Because one-third of your life, one-third of your entire life, you will spend at work. And I would say that's probably the best opportunity you will have to be a witness to other people, to share the hope that you have in Christ. So we have to ask, like, how do we live? If if people live, people live generally one of two ways, right? It doesn't matter what field it is. It's in the military, too, for those in the military. You've got your workaholics, right? That's their life. That's what they do. Like, it defines everything that they are. And they're putting in all the hours They're climbing the ladder. They're trying to outdo everybody. Then you've got those lazy people. They've just kind of given up, and uh, they don't really care. They'll do the absolute bare minimum. But we don't really have that option, do we, as Christians? We can't live that way. Solomon gets at that here in an interesting way, right? And it is important for us to understand uh, because, as I said, one-third of your life is going to be lived like this. You can't just throw your hands up and say, all right, I've just got to work till I die. <clears throat> I found an interesting, uh, an interesting website. It was like blog articles on it. And it was actually uh, called Work, Retire, Die. <laughs> work, Retire, Die. And it was pretty humorous. Um, and the subtitle was, This is Life Now, Cope With Us. It's like you kind of enjoyed life as a kid. Everybody grows up, and then you realize your life's pretty much over now because all it is is work. Well, we can't live like that. That's not how we live as believers. In a world driven by envy, he kind of observes two things if you look at it. People come about, go about this two ways. Sometimes people just give up. That's Ecclesiastes 4.5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. People who fold their hands right, aren't busy working. They aren't busy working. This is the equivalent of people in the army standing around with their hands in their pocket. What happens? You can't stand around. Did you guys know that? You can't stand around with your hands in your pocket in the military. You can't do it. It's, a, it's, like, a, it's like an unwritten rule. Because if, you're, if your hands are folded, you're not at work. And you end up eating your own flesh because now you're poor. Proverbs 6, 10 through 11 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Just quitting and saying, I just, whatever, I'm not going to be involved in the world. It's all broken. I'm not even going to be in it. Not an option for the believer. Second is slavery to work, right? This is the two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind that you see in your text. So picture, there's there's a massive bag of gold up here. And people will come up here, and they'll plunge both their hands into it as deep as they can, and they'll grab as much of it as they can in two hands. It'll be spilling out as you walk down the aisle. The gold will just be spilling out. And that's how some people live their life, to get all that they can, but it's never enough. If you live your life that way, if you become a slave to work, a slave to this system of pursuing wealth, or whatever it is that you're pursuing that you feel that you need to satisfy you, it's an empty toil and a striving after the wind. <clears throat> so what's the third option? The third option is found in four: six. One handful of quiet. One handful of quietness. And then we go back to 322. Because he's kind of made a little bracket here. 322. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Enjoy your work, that is his lot. Who casts lots and who gives lots, that comes from God. Your work has come from the hand of God to you as a blessing from God. We shouldn't think about work post-fall, even in the fall, as part of the curse, because work is pre-fall, and work even now God has given for your enjoyment. This is the very same thing he says already in several verses. It becomes a theme, like there are various themes that kind of unfold through Ecclesiastes, and this is one of them. Ecclesiastes 3.12-13, through 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's God's gift to you to take satisfaction in your work, to live for God's glory, and to live for today. I think this is what... <clears throat> Is repeated okay we are to live for the present moment not like in a carpe diem way like the world lives right uh, who knows what comes tomorrow so eat and drink and whatever and get all the pleasure you can but to live as a believer knowing that today God has given me and I know I have this day and he's given me this he's given me this job this is the place he's placed me I'm to enjoy this as a gift from God um, The key to this is living presently. Now, we might shy away from that because we're like, oh, that sounds kind of Eastern. That sounds like Eastern religion, to live present. The past doesn't exist, right? The past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. All you have is right now. Jesus tells us not to live for tomorrow. He told us in Matthew uh, 6.44, You don't worry about tomorrow. You don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow, right? Tomorrow's got enough troubles of its own. You're alive right now. So live right now. Live in the present. You can't go back to the past, right? People who are unhappy and can't enjoy their work and can't enjoy today as a gift from God, they either live in the past or the present, guaranteed. The past is gone, you can't go to it. You can't do anything about it. What people did to you in the past is gone. You can't change what you did in the past. All you can do is live for right now. How do you not live in the past? How do you not get stuck living in the past? Well, there, is, there are two important things for the believer, I think, brainstorming this. Number one, you've got to believe in the providence of God. A man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. You're right here because God has guided you here through his providence, and you can't go back. God determined that, so you're to trust God's providence. Second, Um, you've got to be a forgiving person. You've got to be a forgiving person. People that are stuck in the past are the most unforgiving people. But how many times does Jesus tell us about forgiveness? He's got a whole parable on it, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, if you've been forgiven much, then you forgive much. And we've been forgiven, right? We've been forgiven. We'll, no one will ever do to us anything comparable to how we sinned against God. And he's forgiven us in Christ. And so to not live in the past, you need to forgive freely. Freely, lavishly, grace. How many times? Infinity times if necessary. There's no past. There's no future. There's only now. The world's fallen. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess, catastrophe, everywhere. We're just going to be miserable our whole lives? No. God's given you your work. He's given you today to live and to receive as a gift from him. All right, that's the very practical advice of Solomon. Solomon. And today we've kind of seen his three observations of the world east of Eden. It's full of injustice. The world's full of oppression. The world is driven by envy. And envy is like the engine behind the wheel that just grinds people in injustice and oppression. But we have to live here. So we need to enjoy today and to live today in the present, receive it as a gift from God, and live for God. But there's more of a lesson here, and briefly, because we're out of time. Place yourself in the mind of Solomon who stands in the promises that are given to King David and knows of the promises of God given, of a Messiah. He knows of Psalm 2. And you know you're not him. You've got all the power and wealth in the world. And all you can see is injustice, oppression, envy, and you can't do anything about it, right? Because there's coming, a greater, there's coming a greater son of David. Greater son of David. And we know this is Jesus Christ. And he comes and he deals with injustice, oppression, and envy. He deals with the problem of the human heart, which drives all of this. And Jesus begins His earthly ministry by reading from the Isaiah scroll. Isaiah 61, we see it in Luke 4. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Jesus' first coming, He accomplished. right. He accomplished the chief problem, which is the human heart that the human heart is enslaved and oppressed by sin. And we can't free ourselves. Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So in His first coming, Jesus goes to the cross in our place. He dies for sinners, bearing the penalty for sin. They bury Him in the grave. He really died. And then three days later, He rose, conquering death. And as one who is alive, He can proclaim freedom and liberty to those oppressed. And you can be free from your sin in Christ. Anyone, no matter how badly, how terrible you think that you are, Christ will forgive you. If you simply come to Him in repentance and faith, He'll free you from the bondage of sin Take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of of flesh, and you'll be free. You'll be free. But he's coming again. His first coming, he dealt with the chief problem of the heart, but he's coming again. And at his second coming, he will be a dispenser of justice. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His clothes, are drip, are, his clothes and his robe are dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And at his second coming, Jesus will bring about perfect justice. Oppression will cease. We sing that at Christmas time. Injustice will cease. Oppression will cease. There will be no envy. There will be no endless will of envy moving the world forward. All people will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, that's you. You will stand before this one who comes his second time as a dispenser of wrath and justice solomon could only observe the desolation of the dragon he could not fix the injustice he could not stop oppression he could not fix the human heart he could not satisfy the 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 longing which drives envy but christ can he will usher in perfect justice he rescues those that are oppressed he will end all oppression and he can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart Christ alone, he alone brings desolation upon the dragon. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would learn, God, help us to learn to live every day when we wake up for that day. To pursue you in that day in which we wake up. To wake up every day pursuing you. Living for you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves one day at a time. For those here that are not Christians, Lord, I pray that they have seen the world for what it is and understand that sin has caused all of this and that sin, that desolation, it's in every human heart. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God, open their eyes to see that Christ will set them free. He will forgive them and love them and make him his own and give them a new life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.